All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to talk about the intersections of housing and domestic violence. And we have with us two experts on the topic, uh, both of whom work for the National Network to End Domestic Violence. And the National Network to End Domestic Violence also participates on the Opportunity Starts at Home Roundtable. Uh, so we have with us Monica McLaughlin, Director of Public Policy, and Debbie Fox, Senior Housing Policy and Practice Specialist. So first, let me introduce Monica. So in her role, uh, Monica works to improve federal legislation and increase resources to address and prevent uh, domestic violence. So she leads a lot of different national coalitions, educates Congress, implements grassroots strategies, and engages all different types of government agencies to ensure that uh, addressing domestic violence is a national priority. She's helped secure record federal investments in programs that address domestic violence and sexual assault, and she also directs her organization's housing policy work. So there's a whole laundry list of accomplishments that, that I could highlight from you know securing life-saving uh, housing protections in the Violence Against Women Act of 2013. Uh, could go on and on and on. But Monica, I'll, I'll turn it over to you and you kind of tell us about yourself and, and why you do the work. What's not in the official bio? Yeah. I think, thanks Thanks for having us. Um, so I think one thing that's not in the official bio that's uh, of interest to the housing intersection is that um, when I interviewed for the job, I, I talked about housing, um, not knowing at the time that the person I was interviewing with really cared about housing as well and that it was a priority for the organization. But um, I had worked in England. I did shelter work okay. in England. And uh, the the survivors there were entitled to housing. So mm. once they experienced domestic violence, they came to shelter. Um, and then once housing was available, socialized housing, mm -hmm. once it was available, they were able to move into that housing. Mm. Um, so it could take a long time, but it was guaranteed. Yeah. Because they it was seen as they were considered homeless, and therefore they were able to get housing. And seeing that... Um, somebody could experience domestic violence and they could be given housing 
not um, because they were a really well-behaved client or that they, um, they you know, sort of had won the lottery in life. Mm-hmm. You know, all the ways in which decision-making in this country can sort of be, it's not about need, right? Yeah. It's often, uh, it's need plus luck, mm-hmm. right? That you are able to get the resources that yeah. we have in this country. Um, and that, to me, just feels egregious, right? That we don't have the resources available for folks who need them. Um, And so uh, I wanted to work on housing policy at the National Network to End Domestic Violence so that folks who did experience domestic violence um, didn't have to face that uh, the choice that survivors have to face, which is continued abuse or homelessness. You know, that, yeah, an untenable choice. Right, yeah. a really untenable choice, and choice doesn't even really capture it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that, I think, has fueled so much of my interest um, in the work and was really um, dovetailed with what uh, the field was asking for as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were able to really focus on it at NNUDV, uh, focused on the policy, focused on HUD regulations as it related to victims of domestic violence. And at one point, we got a federal grant to expand our housing work, and then came Debbie. Um, awesome. <laughs> so that's the work that we're able to do this um, combination of policy and technical assistance, mm-hmm. um, and uh, to, to we think a really um, effective, uh, we feel really effective. Yeah, yeah. that's great. And yeah. it's, I mean... You know, we often talk about, as you mentioned, we, we often refer to it as the housing lottery, uh, whereas in other countries it's an entitlement. It's just, it's right. a basic sort of thing. And then here it's one for people that actually qualify for rental assistance actually get it. And so it's a 25% chance of, of getting the lotto. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and even our requirements for being eligible, right, right are probably higher than other places. Um, so we really make it very challenging for folks in this country to access housing. Yeah. When you, you know, cover that in domestic violence and we'll get more into that that it just makes it even more challenging yeah, for folks. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, uh, Monica. So let's uh, let's introduce Debbie. Uh, so Debbie Fox has worked in the domestic and sexual violence movement for over 20 years. Uh, prior to the network, she helped lead the systems planning and implementation process for the domestic violence system in Portland, Oregon. Uh, she's worked extensively on housing and economic justice issues, uh, like creating the statewide economic justice program at the Oregon Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence, uh, and founding Oregon's first statewide aspiring white allies committee. Uh, she's worked in a few different jurisdictions, including D.C., where she represented the domestic violence housing system in a variety of, of jurisdictional meetings to address and end homelessness in the continuum of care. So, Debbie, I'll ask you the same question. Tell us what's not in the bio. Tell us why you do this work. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. It's really great to be here and to be able to talk about our work that we do and get it to a wider audience around the intersection of DV and housing. So how I got into this work, for many people, domestic violence, it's never far from home. It's a personal and political issue. But for me, when I was in high school, I had a cousin I was close to that was kidnapped by her abuser. And um, she survived and he went on to go to prison, her ex. But that was a very formative um, experience for me to have someone so close to me that was um, impacted by domestic violence. And then... um, not long after that, when I went to college, I um, started getting involved with the domestic violence agency that was in the local community in Indiana and really um, became politicized around the issues around domestic violence and feminism. So it was all kind of um, lined up together for me. And then how I got into the housing field and the intersection around that, because that was in the early to mid-90s, where okay. still, the shelter it was still much more of a shelter response mm-hmm. for domestic violence victims and there wasn't the more comprehensive 
um, response or not as much connected to the continuums of care or the homelessness or housing programs but we did work to get um, people in our shelter into public housing and had strong connections there but um, how I started getting more deeply into housing is after college I went to work at a place called Safe Place which is now called Safe Austin and they built from the ground up one of the first uh, housing programs for domestic violence survivors in the country, the first transitional housing program funded with a variety of different uh, funding resources, including HUD HUD resources. So that, for me, was really an eye-opener of what was possible, and then seeing the, the um, healing that can happen in a longer-term program and a transitional housing program, and you can see people not just coming to shelter and yeah. then going into housing, but having that that time and having the opportunity for them and their families to heal. So so that just always stuck with me. And I lived on site on the program actually as okay. well for a couple of few years, which is not for the faint of heart, but it was sure, like yeah. a very um, great learning experience. And so that has always stuck with me. And, um, and since then I've been an advocate for longer term housing resources and building those partnerships and then trying to ensure more funding and communities for domestic violence and and housing resources. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for introducing yourselves. Um, And, uh, you know, it's just a a wealth of expertise and experience that you all bring to the table. So I'm really excited to learn from you all um, and kind of dig deeper into this very important topic. Um, So I guess we could start... um, by you all just sort of describing the organization itself and what it is that the network does on a daily basis. Sure. Um, well, we were founded in the early 90s um, as the membership organization of the 56 state and territorial domestic violence coalitions. Every state has a domestic violence coalition. Some of them are dual. They address sexual assault as well. And they needed a voice in D.C. Um, so the early days, they would fly into D.C. and um, they started to form. And we, um, our first director was actually uh, Representative Donna Edwards. She wasn't okay. Representative Donna Edwards at the, at the time. time yeah. And then our second director was uh, Lynn Rosenthal, who went on to be the first White House advisor on violence against women. So uh, lots of um, good history there around centering the needs of survivors in Washington, D.C. The mm-hmm. state coalitions do a lot of work um, in their individual states, and we'll talk a little bit more about that probably later around housing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they um, needed a voice in, in D.C. as well. The Federal Violence Against Women Act um, was becoming a thing, um, and, yeah. and they wanted their voices heard on that. So their um, policy is our, um, our genesis, and okay. then at the same time we built up technical assistance, um, responding to the needs in the field uh, around um, various issues. Um, and so um, that's why part of our policy team now has a technical assistance component of it around housing, um, sort of particularly because that's an interest of mine, and then um, so we still house that in the policy team. Um, and then we um, do lots of other technical assistance for the coalitions, confidentiality, tech safety, you know, things okay. where um, folks are being stalked by exes, that kind of thing. Mm. We work on economic justice. We do lots of um, help for survivors to build up their own individual credit, their own individual income. Um, and so there's lots of different components. We're sort of a bigger organization now, but we really started out as a, as a policy response to the state domestic violence mm-hmm. coalitions. How big is the staff? 40? 40, okay. That's yeah. A, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, yeah. I would guess 50. Okay. We're, we're, we've been in an expansion phase, so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but 40 sounds right, too. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of people off-site as well. Right, right. So we have an all-staff meeting this week, so we can do an official Yeah, do the, do the official okay. count, and you'll get <laughs> yeah. back to us. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been there for... Um, 
This is my 12th year. Okay. Yeah, okay. so I've been there forever. Great. Yeah. So, uh, so let's get into kind of the, the meat of the subject, and we'll just sort of, the, the bottom line up front, I think, is that uh, anti-domestic violence advocates must also be affordable housing advocates. Why is that? Do you know what, what Debbie and I go out and into the community and we will be like, here's these fixes that we have for you around housing. And we've worked really hard to make these fixes on the technical assistance and system side of things. Mm-hmm. And then we hear back from people like, yeah, but there's also an affordable housing crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, they, so we have a lot of work of which we're proud and it is absolutely essential. And also it lands in communities that have an affordable housing crisis. Yeah. So, I mean, we're like, we want to increase survivors' income. You know, that's, mm-hmm. they, they need more money in their lives, right? So a lot, we support lots of legislation that does that. Uh, and, but they need to be able to afford housing, whether yeah. it's through subsidy or it's affordable in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, we hear that back um, from our audiences um, often. You know, we will hear from folks. I can, I'm just visualizing it. I'm yeah. remembering trainings I've been in where I have a lovely presentation. And I'm like, here's how I'm solving mm-hmm. all your problems. And they're like... What about this other gaping hole yeah. problem? And so we are doing both, right? So we do feel like it's one of the things that we really need to have a bigger, a big focus on, um, because it is such a critical. So it, it, it's it's everywhere too, isn't it? Like in uh, rural areas, it's sort of no housing available, or in um, in uh, urban areas, it's so expensive. Right? So there's yep. just yeah, we, we try to stress that point all the time, that it, it's hit everywhere, that, mm-hmm. you know, in 99% of counties, um, a full-time minimum wage worker um, cannot afford a decent one-bedroom rental home. And so it's hit urban areas, it's hit suburban areas, it's, it's not just a L.A., New York, San Francisco mm-hmm. problem. I mean, it's hit the most rural places in the country, um, particularly when you talk about the lowest income uh, people. So, yeah, you're right to, to stress that point. It's just, it's pervasive. If you put up a map of all the counties in the country, darn near every single one of them has an affordable housing crisis for the lowest income people. So, yeah. And we try to move back to our programs. We do the NIDV census count um, mm-hmm. annually that's in September for all of our member programs. So that's our way to talk to Congress and then also to get a pulse um, from our membership of like what's the snapshot on a particular day in the country mm-hmm. for survivors. So it's it's looking at what the requests are for services, who's coming into services, who's there that day. So the number, yeah. the highest request is always housing. And it's usually in 70 to 80% of the requests are for mm-hmm. housing. There's a high amount of turnaway, so this is one of those issues that it's made more visible in terms of the homelessness or housing issue for DV survivors, because often it is very visible around the family homelessness piece, um, or around people experiencing domestic violence is is happening by enclosed doors, or uh, families are staying in a domestic violence shelter, so it's not always seen in the way that sometimes individual or street homelessness is seen, so we, we do the census count, so we have that information, and then also can mirror back to our field of we, you know, we're really great as advocates and DV advocates to want to work on all the issues right. and and um, and we try to as much as possible. But mm-hmm. like we've invested in a lot of different systems, child welfare, uh, criminal justice, um, and this is always a reminder. Like we should also be in the housing world, right. and so a big part of my work and Monica's vision is making sure that advocates and DV programs in the field are are doing the housing pieces, working with. Um, all the different housing partners yep. and then being fearless around thinking about like what is possible like we do like safe is a good example safe also like they 
became a housing developer and we mm-hmm. have work a lot with the, the Kentucky Coalition Against Domestic Violence it's phenomenal and they do a lot of work in rural areas around home ownership and they they're house, affordable housing developers so that's information we can share with our membership the different programs we're like what do we do fix it and like you can fix it too like yeah. you can be a housing developer and and then there's the flip side and sometimes in the housing world we're like oh victim services aren't housing mm-hmm. and I'm like oh no we yeah. are and we yeah. can be and like we it's 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 much um, more powerful and everybody's working together to solve solutions in states or communities um, around the housing issue and there's really great inspiring examples out there yeah it's so it's so interesting to me, no matter who we talk to, whether it's folks in the education space or the healthcare space or domestic violence space, there's this common theme of we're trying to improve outcomes, we're trying to improve outcomes, and we hit this wall. And the wall is the affordable housing crisis, that you just can't escape it, and that the outcomes in your particular sector are so dependent upon whether the people you serve have access to good housing. Um, and we hear that from the education folks. You know, we're trying to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, we're trying to... You know, improve curriculum. We're trying to do this. We're trying and to do that. Kids but if they don't have a home, exactly, yeah. You just yeah, you yeah. just run into these roadblocks. Yeah. Um, so it speaks to the fact that we all need to be sort of advocating together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was struck, you know, in, in kind of thinking through the this podcast. I was on your website, um, and I think it just tells a, a really compelling story about the need for housing. And so I want to read a, a quick quote from the website, which I think paints a very powerful picture. Uh, So, quote, uh, victims of domestic violence struggle to find permanent housing after fleeing abusive relationships. Many have left in the middle of the night with nothing but the clothes on their backs and now must entirely rebuild their lives. As long-term housing options become scarcer, victims are staying long in emergency domestic violence shelters, and as a result, shelters are frequently full and must turn families away. I wanted to kind of um, hear from you all about, um, you know, a particular individual or a particular family uh, that really impacted the way that, that you think about this issue, um, a particular individual or family that really struggled um, with this, this housing wall that we, that we talked about. Um, so I'll just turn it over to you and kind of tell us a story about, a, you know, a real-life family that, that uh, you know, experienced this barrier. Well, I think about with the there's a lot, there's so many stories sure. around the struggle for housing and then just the uh, the major barriers that domestic violence survivors face when finding mm-hmm. housing. Um, not just the market and just you know, just the right. all the different walls, but just like you have someone actively trying to sabotage your life and trying to fight with you over custody issues and just there's multiple layers that make um, the process of leaving and disentangling an abusive relationship so hard. But I think about this family that we worked with when we did the coordinated entry in the, in the domestic violence system, you, like confidentiality is critical. And so right. we would try to figure out how to coordinate services without um, sharing personally identifiable information. Sure. But so we had a family who was in the shelter for, I don't know, eight, eight months. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the mother um, um, was sight impaired and then a lot of health issues and then um, poor children with multiple health issues. And we really were just struggling finding a place for her to go. And she just was kind of like one of those cases that was just like staying in shelter. And mm-hmm. then, I mean, like you were saying, like the lucky like day or just like uh, something yeah. shift happening. We had a bunch of county money and we were able to pay off um, some past 
debt due to an eviction related to her abuser. So it was like some ridiculously high amount of money, like six or eight thousand dollars. But we were able to negotiate with um, to get that money down mm-hmm. a little bit and pay for her to get into housing. But it took like county, multiple agencies, the housing authority. It like took all these different interventions and all these different systems to wrap around this person to be able to move them. And then um, in, in prior days, we had a rule like you could only stay in shelter for 60 days mm-hmm. with these county contracts. And so with the housing crisis in Oregon, that had to shift. So, you know, had she not been able to stay in the old model, like having to shelter hop to like, Mm-hmm. Your sixty days is up. Good luck. Yeah, go to the um, next one. Yeah, go to the next one and restarting. Like she was able to at least have that stability in shelter um, for a long chunk of time in the shelter. Just yeah, the more on philosophical shift of just like we're responsible mm-hmm. for this family. We've accepted them into our program, and we're going to ensure that they're going to leave safely. And it took a lot of money, resources, people to do that, but um, they got into permanent housing as a result. So I think of that story and all that it took is a lot like it's so if you think of someone trying to leave on their own or not connected to resources like how many roadblocks you run into right monica Uh, i think about someone who we brought in for a congressional briefing of a couple of years ago who was a young mother at the time and um had been her abuser brought her to a new community so she now has children, mm-hmm. um, and they have children, um, and she has to flee. She's not safe there anymore, um, and she was able to access first shelter, emergency shelter and then transitional housing, um, and she was able to stay there for a certain amount of time so that she could um, build up her ability to, to rent somewhere. Yeah. And again, it's so many resources involved. Um, I think about her around uh, what she what were her barriers I mean I think co-parenting with an abuser is really challenging Mm -hmm. someone who is actively stalking you and sabotaging you also incredibly challenging but she had the program there to provide support and safety um, so that because you know this person would find her and as she was at the bus stop and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing and so um, she was uh, yes a young mother who could have um, really either stayed or had no access to resources and the transitional housing program helped her get into housing um and eventually she bought a home and she also um is you know now she works for the county government Mm -hmm. and is like living a really good life (laughs) um but it's because she again was connected to the housing resources she had that ability to be um to have folks circle around her focus give her resources and give her a place to stay and go yeah. i mean and for me like thinking about what debbie and i were just talking about there are some folks the dv world you know we think about um some folks just need a light touch intervention and mm-hmm. can just it's just rental assistance they don't need the wraparound services necessarily um other folks do need those wraparound services often for victims of domestic violence it's helpful because they are there's this active i think about abusers as like a headwind you know you're just trying to live your life and there's all this stuff coming at you because they're actively um, stalking harassing harming and and trying to unravel so again if if housing isn't available you know the, the, the two work together against mm-hmm. the survivor. Yeah. And again, it's that sort of lottery and having resources to be wrapped around. Yeah. And for those those that do get it, it's a platform to rebuild their lives and their trajectory can change. But it's so that, that housing is the platform. It's it's sort of mm-hmm. the 
the the necessary condition by which all the other things happen. Um, yeah, and there's another piece too that, in terms of model shifting, I think differently of trying to ensure that there's funding, just flexible funding. So if mm-hmm. someone does, if someone can and is able to safely stay in their home, like modifying your home to make it safer, what, mm-hmm. what that might look like, working with the survivor to try to figure that out, like if it's more security or security systems or whatever could be needed or even if they've just been left with like a huge bill from an ex and mm. was abusive like can we just pay pay some of the past yeah. due or some pay of the rent off. to yeah. like get you stable versus the whole yeah. fallout that can happen when you become homeless so mm-hmm. we're yeah, trying to think about like the dv system the housing system like we're also trying to think about this preventative measures as well and having those flexible resources that can just pay pay things here or there that are needed right. versus coming to shelter, which is, as we know, an expensive intervention, right. often needed for safety for survivors. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about your, your out-of-reach report that y'all do. Like, So in every place in this country, you, know, you basically need two incomes to afford a home. Um, and that is, so what, so if you're in an abusive relationship, um, this person is making the, uh, your household work, right? You're pulling in an income, this person's pulling in an income, um, and if this person is now out of the equation, um, because you've been able to flee or criminal justice Mm -hmm. response, this is no longer tenable. Um, so that's some of the stuff Debbie was talking about with prevention, but, um, yeah, it's so, such an element of power and control for abusers, because we all know this, right? And how important being able to be independent is for survivors after abuse. Um, being able to not have to depend on the perpetrator um, is uh, it's absolutely life changing. And I think that that because so many folks are tied together economically, yeah. they just like have right. to accept it. Yeah, we'll get. I want to get more into that um, later too, where it's not. It's not just the sort of the, the physical and verbal abuse, but oftentimes there's tremendous sabotage of a victim's economic stability. There's, um, you know, abusers are often ruining their credit history. They're lying about bills. They say they paid the bills and really they're just stacking up. And, and so I want to get more into to that a little bit later. But I think it's important for people um, to understand that we're not just talking about the physical and the mental scars. There's just this, um, you know, credit history that's ruined and all these other things that, that really sabotage them as they are in the search um, for very scarce housing in the first place. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the you know the the stories are are very powerful and compelling. I want to also share some statistics that I think kind of frame the the scale of this. That it is a it is a pervasive problem. We're not just talking about onesies, twosies here and there, and, and anecdotal stories. This is a very very uh, pervasive problem. So, among homeless moms with kids. Over 80% of them previously experienced domestic violence. Uh, There was a study of 110 women uh, who experienced domestic violence, and 38% of them reported homelessness afterwards. Um, So it's pervasive. So so give us a little bit of sense uh, of the the scale here that we're talking about. Right. So those would be the same statistics we would look at. And again, when we – I think there was a – there were a couple things. Another study that's out there is the NISVIS study, which is National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence um, Survey. Okay. Um, and it shows um, a really compelling data piece for me, which is that um, those who experience housing instability um, 
are at a higher risk of domestic violence. Mm. And I mean, I think that that really demonstrates, right, that abusers um, find folks who are vulnerable, yeah. and that when you're vulnerable, it's harder to get out. And yeah. so yeah. Um, housing instability uh, makes you more susceptible yeah. to domestic violence. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, vicious cycle. Vicious yeah. cycle and, and terrible. And I think that, um, so it's so common when advocates tell us all the time, we need housing, right? Mm -hmm. Survivors tell us mm -hmm. all the time, we need housing. Survivors come into shelter and say, um, th there was a shelter study in 2008 that survivors said, the thing I needed the most help with was housing. And I think the conclusion was, look, my advocate was great. Like they really worked with me on this, mm -hmm. but also they couldn't materialize a house for me. Right. And right. some can, where we talk about like there are folks building housing, but for the vast majority of survivors, it just doesn't materialize. Yeah. So in your opinion, be honest, so for folks that are traditionally in the housing sector, folks that advocate for stronger housing policies, and they are, they are housers, um, do you think that the housing sector has paid enough attention um, to this vulnerable population of people? Has enough attention been paid? I think with Debbie's work, they're moving in that direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just me. I think, well, <laughs> just honestly, me. <laughs> I vote yes. I mean, yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um, I, think, I, mean, I think we would always want more of the conversation or even having this opportunity with sure. the opportunity starts at home. Yeah, like yeah. just having more of those conversations. And I mean, and I, I think about it and really to some of the work that I do, there's, you know, I work on things and people are like, you just give me reminders like, oh, you might want to mention that, you know, mm -hmm. like thinking about centering different issues. Um, you know, and I try to just be understanding like we're all so maxed and busy and people are doing their things. But yeah, the, anytime that this is in the conversation and looking at the different intersection around domestic violence and homelessness yeah. um, is, is important. And I think for me, always wanting to make, like I said earlier, make the people who are housing unstable or, or families, like making those more visible this issue because I think it's a very hidden issue in our country yeah. like we don't see family homelessness and and it's a continual educational piece with um, folks and I do want to mention just stats too just thinking about too like what it is, it's exasperated for women of color mm -hmm. in our in, in the DV realm in terms of like the response the housing response and like increased discrimination and racial discrimination so the, those are additional barriers sure. that are impacting um survivors of color that we are also um, needing to address and look at as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's just many more economic factors in terms of the financial abuse and um, economic discrimination that survivors of color face that make it more challenging for right. safe housing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I also want to talk, build on something Debbie said about invisibility of the issue. Um, I think for a very long time, um, Look, I think our politicians are um, interested in visible homelessness because it's on their streets. And right. You see it getting off the metro. You see right. it every day. Yeah. So therefore, like, they want to deal with it from that perspective. Um, but family homelessness, homelessness of, um, of women and queer folks looks different if you're, especially like uh, young queer kids who are having to do things like... Um, they might not be considered homeless, but if you are having to 
um, basically exchange sex for living somewhere, look, you're homeless, yeah, right? Yeah. Where's the power for you? Mm-hmm. So much for survivors, too. So survivors get asked, like, well, do you have anywhere else you could live? So here's a person who's just lived in this power dynamic that's right. terrible for them. And then the housers are sort of trying to say, or the homelessness system is saying, well, can't you live with your cousin over here? Um, and, you know, in doubled-up situations, kids are more at risk yeah. for all sorts yeah. of things. Right. So for us and perpetuation of bad family things um so for us we want to really make visible what has been invisible another reason women's homelessness uh, or parents homelessness is often invisible is because they're not going to live on the streets or in cars they're going to do everything they can to not do that because they don't need a child welfare intervention Mm, i mean if a child welfare intervention brought them a house thank you very much right but not (laughs) not getting your kids you know so i think that that for us is another piece that we want to bring to the fore the data about victims of domestic violence especially their homelessness is not readily available because of our confidentiality rules we Mm. don't enter data about individuals so therefore it doesn't get um, put into annual reports so there are pieces that are missing that again that's mine and Debbie's work to really to ring that bell and yeah. to, to keep bringing forward yeah and this is so when I was uh, going through your website um, something that I, I hadn't thought about much was that survivors are often experiencing homelessness in multiple episodes that it's not just you leave your abuser um, and then you're you escape once and for all that they often try to leave several times and it, and it takes a while and 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 it takes a while before they can finally escape once and for all so can you kind of talk more about this that there are multiple episodes of this recurring um, for people experiencing domestic violence yeah I think I mean I think for survivors I mean there, there are layers around domestic violence and the pattern of abuse and cycles mm-hmm. of abuse like it doesn't happen overnight and, right. and if you think about the need for connection that humans have and the, that relationship and if you're intertwined with people's family your community if you're an immigrant survivor if you're, your um, spiritual communities are intertwined like it's not easy to disentangle from a marriage or a relationship that's mm-hmm. very meaningful so there are these layers of part of part of the abuse is yeah. abusers are typically make a lot of promises that things are going to improve right. and get better and, right. and that it was just the, the first time was this or that, so it takes. Yeah. There's there's usually the multiple episodes of abuse leaving and coming back until a survivor um, realizes that um, that that the person is going is not going to change. And also, there's the safety factor too. That if you have someone threatening your life, threatening to kill you, threatening to kill right. your family members, your children, I mean, that's very compelling to return or to stay right. in, a, right. in a situation. And the and the lethality and the threat of harm is very very real. So that's another important piece in terms of messaging to housing and homelessness systems. It's like um, people, it's it's people isn't isn't like cookie cutter. Like you're right, not gonna it's like, not that simple. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. not going to like get into housing and then like a, yeah, and then mm-hmm. oftentimes it's challenging if you do get into housing and an abuser finds you. It's layers of layers upon layers of um, that's why we have laws to protect survivors. So like if mm-hmm. someone is unsafe, they can move without um, fault. And but that's really challenging for systems who um yeah it creates a lot of work yeah. and additional um, um um challenges but yeah the, the like our goal is to try to make sure people get into housing stay safe and then um are able to be economically like independent from their abusers but that life life and people's lives are much more complicated yeah than yeah. that we often get um proposals from uh members of congress about 
you know, uh, evicting folks who are perpetrators from housing, barring them from federal housing and or getting subsidy. And we don't agree with that. Um, a, a sort of a loose out there perpetrator is no good to a survivor. <laughs> we don't want a, a perpetrator who doesn't have anywhere to be, um, that they're more dangerous to a survivor. So actually we support, uh, we, we never support policies that sort of try to make it harder for perpetrators to live somewhere because they do need to live somewhere. Um, and if they're housed somewhere that's not with a survivor, um, that's better. We, that's a surprise to Congress sometimes. When yeah, we have to sure. come back and say, because um, you know, if you punish a perpetrator, they don't just evaporate. Yeah, you know, we yeah. haven't been able to do, develop that policy. Yeah. So the, um, they are still around. They need to be housed as well. Mm. Hadn't thought about that. So housing for the perpetrator actually makes the victim more safe. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Especially if you're economically intertwined or if there's right. um, custody things happening or you're financially intertwined. Yeah, like you want your your ex to still be working and to be able right. to see your kids and yeah. have, that, have that relationship safely mm-hmm. and structured if it needs to be. But yeah, the people, people typically are in people's lives in, um, in some form or fashion, yeah. at least for the period of time when people are trying to leave a situation. It's hard to just, you know, it does happen and people are in really dangerous situations where they do have to leave and completely... Right. Go, go cut ties. Yeah. But that's you know that those those are those are the hard situations. Yeah. yeah. Or the perpetrator might be in prison, but like mm-hmm. it's not that doesn't not a lot. Not a lot. Right. Not a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, so another thing that I, I uh, read on your website was that 83, there was a, a survey done of, of survivors, and 83 percent that were entering shelters identified uh, finding housing I can afford as a need. Um, and the only one that beat that was safety for myself. So the top thing they identified was, as a need, was safety for myself. And then second was finding housing I can afford. So I think it's it's important um, for folks to understand that housing isn't just sort of something down the checklist or in the back of the mind, like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll get to that as in the course of rebuilding my life. It's it's at the foremost of their minds. It is something that they are hyper-concerned about when they're exiting this situation. Um, so what happens uh, when survivors don't find stable housing? What happens? They go home. They go back to the abuse, um, most likely. Um, yeah, or they face homelessness, lots of instability, um, Lots of lots of moving around. Um, I'm sort of picturing folks I've worked with. I worked yeah. in I worked in Montana, and we were a we were a spot for folks who wanted to sort of see the edge of the map and go there. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of folks who had exhausted all of their resources, okay. you know, and came out and, and tried to you know they go from shelter to shelter. Um, yeah, back to the abuse. Um, I think. I mean, other... well, it just makes me think of the work of like. Out of Watson Legal Services. Who's the woman, the lawyer? No. But around just thinking about like being really, as in our services in our field, like being as forthright as you can with survivors in terms of, especially if you have limited options. Obviously, if it's a dangerous, unsafe situation, like people are trying to flee, but like there, there's work. I wish you could help me remember. I'm gonna remember. Um, but around like. How to support survivors who are staying in relationships too? Jill because, Davies. Thank you. Mm. I knew. I knew yeah, what I was it? There. Jill Davies. Jill Davies. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Cause, yeah, because there's a, just a multitude of um, factors in people's lives where someone might 
stay in a, an abusive situation. One of them being housing and mm-hmm. and having a safe place for their kids. Like there, there, these aren't these are not real choices. These no, are just like trying awful. to yeah. survive and make the best do that you can. But like, yeah, if you can't find housing and um, with with especially in high cost cities or with the increased gentrification, like you, all the displacement, like it's. It's 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 untenable, really. Mm-hmm. And you think about people paying two or three thousand dollars for like two bedrooms. Like it's not realistic for single parents or single moms who have um, children's and kiddos. Like there's a lot of difficult choices. Choices in quotes. I'm not. Yeah, the people have to make. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think the power dynamic as well. That if you have access to housing you can finally sort of have some of that power back and some folks do say and make that you know like as from the Jill Davies work you know look at how you can not you don't necessarily have to leave to make it safe there are ways to to still live life but I think that um just uh for so many survivors it means that you that you can't just take off because I think you know for us we often struggle so if someone is murdered in a domestic violence situation and then people who know very little um, <laughs> will comment mm-hmm. on the internet and say like why didn't she just leave? Yeah, why'd she you stay? Yeah. Yeah, we'll them, yeah, We did a campaign um, you know why I stayed basically mm-hmm. right um, and then how you can help because I think yeah it's it is really ridiculous to sort of look at somebody else's life and say oh if I were in that situation yeah yeah. You know, and there's so many human reasons why people end up staying. So housing is, is a huge piece of it. Well, yeah. the key piece around DV and the dynamic is isolation. So that I think the other thing for people listening is thinking about, like, if you know people in domestic violence situations or, I mean, people do reach that point, too, where there's the isolation happens with the abuser, but then also friends and family can reach a point of frustration with um, family members and the dynamic. But I think there are those points of, like, trying to be there uh, and be a support the multiple times someone tries to leave and making sure that they know um, when they're leaving that, that, that they have resources and family and support but it's very challenged for people um, and family members who who also um, um, don't know how to help in these kind right. of situations but yeah but when people are leaving that's when they need the most help and to know that they have that kind of support because and then if you leave and you don't if you don't have a great response from family or friends or spiritual communities or or social services or housing providers like you're just getting walls up that's that's like you're like okay where like what what am i gonna do mm-hmm. like the, there's not there's not a lot of options there yeah i, I just can't imagine that that choice of you know, you, you can't find long-term housing, so it's a choice between homelessness or staying or going back to a situation where you know that physical and or verbal abuse is imminent. And yeah. that, it, you know, I mean, just people in this country should not have to ever make that make that choice. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the, the other barriers that intersect with with housing. So we talked about just the the national uh, affordable housing crisis. Um, there's just not enough units for low-income people, many of whom are, are survivors. Um, it's hit urban, rural, suburban areas. Um, but in addition to just the, the shortage, the, the affordable housing shortage, um, there's a lot of other barriers that intersect that, that make things even more um, difficult. And so I want to talk about some of those barriers. One, we kind of hit on earlier, where uh, abusers are, are often ruining uh, credit history. They're lying about bills paid. 
And so after they escape, it, it follows them, right? And they might not be able to pass a background check that a landlord gives. And so they can't, you know, there, there's already the shortage. And then you have these extra sort of screening processes like a background check where nothing, you know, it's something somebody else did, but it follows them and prevents them from getting housing. Um, can you talk a little bit more to, to that phenomenon? Yeah, I think one of our colleagues said that, you know, it used to be that survivors would show up to shelter with the clothes on their back, and now they show up with the clothes on their back and years of debt, Mm -hmm. you know, because the survivors are in their credit and they have um, those kinds of pieces. They also have, like you said, bad rental history, sometimes a criminal history as well, Mm -hmm. because perpetrators might be doing, engaging in criminal activity that gets the survivors swept in through coercion. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, that's a huge, we hear that all the time from survivors, so... Um, when during the last administration there was work to you know ban the box, yeah. we had a lot of support for that, right? Because mm-hmm. lots of survivors um, have criminal histories, um, particularly through coercion from the perpetrator. And um, that ruined credit piece, yeah, what the things that have happened in your history can be very hard because you've been with this other person, right. or you're just low income and life's kind of hard. Right, to, right. right. Um, so um, that that's going to follow you. Um, we really work on lots of policies to to make those um to make to clear to clear those barriers yeah. we also have a relatedly we have a uh, project at nadv where we create we give micro loans to survivors to build okay. up their credit mm. so that they can access that so we're working on the policy side and also the practical side for folks who are currently experiencing ruined credit we're giving them micro loans they're building up their credit and then they can go do whatever you need to do with your credit like get a yeah. house or other things yeah um, lack of steady employment, I think, is another barrier too. And yeah. and you know the when you're in a situation of, of constant you know violence and abuse, you can potentially miss a lot of work. Um, there's the stalking that you talked about, and people you know can get fired because their abuser just shows up and stalks them at work, and so the employer says you're gone. Um, so lack of steady employment is is another uh, barrier as well. Um, there's um, you know, there's obviously um, circumstances where the landlord would evict them, right? The, like the abusive situation, uh, the police are always out there. They're always on call or there's potentially property damage that goes on. And so the landlord decides to evict them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just goes back to the, the fact that it's it's not just the, the physical and the verbal abuse. It's just the sabotage of, mm-hmm. of economic stability. Um, so your website talks about the need for flexible systems um, to support survivors of domestic violence. Can you kind of explain a little bit more what you mean by the the flexible systems and how housing kind of fits into that flexible system of support? Yeah, I mean, I think about it like it's just things that like a lot of systems are created like rules and policies, like one mm-hmm. size fits all. But yeah. like I think, but I think like housing authorities are a good example. Like when you talk about nuisance ordinances, like mm-hmm. that is a prime example. Like we have the Violence Against Women Act, housing protections that basically say, you know, you're protected around domestic violence and you can keep your housing and you mm-hmm. can transfer to safe housing if you're in a dangerous situation. But but, but domestic violence is often unseen and a survivor, often there's a lot of shame around it and you mm-hmm. have someone telling you that no one's going to believe you and right. um, what, you're, what you're thinking happening is not happening. So you internalize that, you start to believe it. So you, the person might be experiencing domestic violence, but... Um, it might not look like that to a resident coordinator or a housing manager if there's um, police are being called or your abuser right. is engaging in criminal activity. Like that just looks like, okay, you're creating... Yeah, you're just uh, causing problems. Causing yeah. problems yeah. in our community. So like that is... A, so so 
there are so many layers in terms of just like working with PHAs, working with um, housing authorities, and and really educating people to um, be able to respond to these situations. And I think that's a good example. Of like you can't be cookie cutter. Like this happened, so you're addicted. Like that. Like you have to look a little deeper and figure out the different layers of what's happening in that dynamic or that relationship and build the trust with the survivor so the one Italian, I mean, often in systems, like yeah, there's the fear of um, child welfare involvement or, yeah. you know, removal of your kids or um, your abuser harming you, someone finds out mm-hmm. that, that you are disclosing the abuse that's yeah. happening. So there has to be uh, trusted relationships and trust in the systems and belief and their survivors. I do many trains where people are like, well, what if she wants to move more than once? I'm like, you're not a detective. Like, right. if she says she's unsafe, right. like, it's do it. Like, yeah. you don't, you know, it doesn't have to be on you. Like, if if she if something does happen and she's um, injured or hurt, like, you don't want to have to think about that. Like, just just believe. Just like it's a basic Me Too movement kind of right. just believe survivors yeah. Yeah. and 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 try to do that kind of flexible things to make. It happen even if it is more work like you don't want that yeah. on your conscience if something did go wrong but right. that, that's kind of like one example of an intervention like being flexible around it and digging a little deeper and um, having situations. the humility that like that thing where you went earlier when folks sort of say like well if I were in such a situation XYZ logical thing would happen yeah. and sort of saying like really though because this is a logical person mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and so you have to be able to be huge you know, have humility when you're working with survivors to, to let them be in the driver's seat. For us, that's really important. Give, um, helping survivors build autonomy because they've been in a relationship where someone's second-guessing them all the time. Mm-hmm. So anyone who comes into contact with a survivor, believing a survivor, giving the survivor the tools they need, and not adding that layer of judgment, very helpful. Yeah. Again, in this situation where there's so many other barriers... Why be a human? Why barrier? introduce another one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talk yeah. yourself out. Plenty, of that. yeah. <laughs> Plenty of barriers already. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, this the opportunity starts at home campaign, and you all are, are members of the the roundtable. And so you know, the whole idea is that we're trying to bring together these various sectors: um, education, health, uh, domestic violence, uh, civil rights, anti hunger folks, um, to to urge Congress to dramatically expand. Um, affordable housing investments and you know the, the lack of federal funding for affordable housing um, is chronic it's contributing greatly to uh, the shortage that, that we're experiencing and, and when you're talking about you know vulnerable people with low incomes the the rents are just too high um, and the only thing that'll fill that gap is, is public subsidy high, yeah so too damn high yes, yes. yes. <laughs> that's true we, yeah, that's right we talked about uh, <laughs> we talked before the podcast if cursing was allowed and I said it was encouraged so we finally got we finally got one in but it's a pretty tame one though I'll say um, so so you just can't you know you just can't avoid the fact that this will require um, public investment so I was just curious um, about kind of your view of what, what's the federal role uh, that you all see in sort of tackling this broader affordable housing um, challenge? And I think we've already established that this would lead to better outcomes in domestic violence, but I kind of wanted to see your thoughts in terms of what's your vision of a federal role in terms of dealing with this housing affordability crisis? Well, I think that one of the things that we see is, you know, the vision that, that has been 
put forward from your agency and lots of folks who work on this all the time is one that we want to elevate, right? So yeah. that we're creating more housing, that we are creating jobs that go with it, that transportation is available, right? If you read our census, transportation is a huge barrier for survivors. Mm, yeah. um, so that we're really looking at it holistically and mm-hmm. that we're looking at it um, urgently, Yeah. right? Like it is not something... I think for too long, for too many crises in this country, we've sort of accepted status quo. Eh, people don't really get a place to live. Eh, people can live on the streets. People don't have enough money to um, both pay their rent and their light bill and their health care. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not acceptable in yeah. such. We have um, we have wealth in this nation. We're a country where there is plenty to go around. Um, we just need to have the political will, I think, to mm-hmm. make it happen. Yeah. So for us, it's about, like, we work to educate our folks. They, they want to be involved in, in affordable mm-hmm. housing. They want to lend their voices to that. I mean, I think we tend to sort of say, like, let's lend your voices in these ways that you can keep working on the main thing that you work on right. and that we, you know, give you the opportunity to weigh in when it's time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of how we structure looking at the work well, and I trusting the work. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. No. Yeah. I appreciate the work of um, the, the partnership with the housing and the health care mm-hmm. community, thinking thinking about it from a prevention aspect and, a, and, a, and it saves money in the long run in terms of, um, you think of like people on the streets or like high high systems users like that money could go towards housing um folks and i and i always used the stats from the the out of reach but mm-hmm. also i think that there's a grid out there too just like the disinvestment in federal housing since the 70s in yep. our country and how it just has not kept up with growth or mm-hmm. costs or inflation that um there's been a disinvestment in housing and it's been very strategic and um and I do think that there there's a just this gap that you all talk about in LHIC too, like about the zero to thirty percent, like people there are people who just are for whatever reason are unable to work or not going to work, or mm-hmm. if they do work, the wages are They're very so low. low yeah. um, so yeah. so kind of having some sort of um, subsidy or support for those folks. I mean, I've done the point in time count. You know, I've met people be on the streets who've been on the streets for 20 or 30 years I'm like just get them <laughs> just let's just find them at home like yeah. you know like so the some of the rhetoric around the pulling yourself up by your, your bootstraps mm-hmm. like like things that are embedded in our country's um philosophies like is it's not always practical when someone is unable to work for whatever um myriad of reasons so yeah I always think like can we just keep up with like where we were in the 70s and right. like, you're like <laughs> Like it wouldn't even get us there, but just like trying to trying to maintain um, some sort of level of funding, and 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 there's this idea that there's going to be private partnerships or local levels can can sustain it, but it really has to be a combination of a bunch of um, people and communities investing, and there has to be a federal investment. And it's costing yeah. us money elsewhere, right? Like mm-hmm. if we don't house people. That we're, we're paying for it in other ways, yep. right? So yeah. I think that that's we really need to take a long view look, which is challenging in electoral politics. It can be tough. It can yeah. be hard, yeah. um, but it's it's the long view. Yeah. How do we really invest in what will bring well-being to our communities? Yeah, we try to stress that a lot. Where often, you know, you talk about a particular housing policy of you know National Housing Trust Fund or expanding vouchers, and the question is always this: Well, how much does this cost? And we always try to say, well, here's how much, uh, here's how much it costs if we don't do this, and yeah. it's much more than if we did yeah. do this. And yeah. you know, um, our health partner, Children's Health Watch, they have a great study that um, shows that you know, in the next ten years, 
we're going to spend $111 billion in avoidable health care expenditures because people aren't stably housed. Um, and, you, and both of you brought this point up earlier that it's much, it's much more cost effective to get people stably housed than all of the other things that happen if they aren't. Um, and I'm glad you also brought up the, the federal disinvestment piece. The, you know, the, the Federal Budget Authority for Housing Programs has dramatically decreased over the past couple decades. And, and we try to make that point a lot that you know, the current situation we find ourselves in, right, all the crazy statistics and out of reach of how bad the crisis really is, Mm -hmm. um, it is in part due to just chronic federal disinvestment. And therefore, um, part of the solution here is federal investment, right? I mean, there's local actions that need to be done, there's state actions that need to be done, but you cannot escape the reality that the federal government is going to have to act here. And so, um, you know, the other thing that I thought you brought up, I'm having all these reflections as you all were talking, but just the trust factor, I think, um, uh, just when you're in these sort of multi-sector partnerships of having trust uh, that you're the experts in your particular area. And right, there's an element of trust that when, you know, we're saying this housing policy would be really effective in, you know, solving the crisis, that there's an element of trust there that like, yes, mm-hmm. that we, we believe that. And then, um, you know, lending your voices to this as well. Um you know, is is just so powerful. So there's, um, I think there's a there's got to be a deep trust when we do this kind of this multi sector work. Um, so I wanted to um, end. We're almost about out of time, but I wanted to ask you um, where people can go to to learn more about this issue. I assume your website was one place, but are there other resources or toolkits that you might recommend? Definitely. Uh, do you want to do plug? Oh, yeah. yeah, I'll do a plug. Um, so <laughs> this is plug time, so get it all out there. <laughs> um, so we, I'm part, yeah, we haven't mentioned the consortium. So there's a DV and Housing Technical Assistance Consortium. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we work nationally on um, building capacity communities to address housing solutions for domestic and sexual violence survivors. So that is a federally funded project. Um, and we have a website called the Safe Housing Partnership, so you can just go to safehousingpartnerships.org, okay. and there's a lot of information on that website around this intersection. And then in terms of people who are listening and want support or want more information just about de- domestic and sexual violence or the dynamics around that, there's the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and I want to say it's 799-SAFE. I can't... Do I, yeah, I think you're right, yeah. I think I still have it memorized. 1-800-799-SAFE, yeah. Yeah, so and you, you can also Google... Um, the National Domestic Violence Hotline as well. And they have a teen chat room too, so it's, um, yeah, any people can reach out in a d- mm-hmm. different formats as well. Yeah. And womenslaw.org helps folks who are um, facing um, legal issues but don't have representation. That's part of our organization. So folks, lots of um, housing information on there as well. Um, lots of folks do need legal assistance to keep their housing. And then, yeah, our website, nnedv.org, and on there you can see nnedv.org backslash census which is our National um, Domestic Violence Counts Report, um, which is replete with stories uh, about housing and other issues facing survivors of violence. Yeah, great. Um, is there anything that, that uh, you know you want to leave the audience with, the, sort of a, a summary, anything else you want our audience to know? I just think, yeah, when you're thinking about developing housing, thinking about and working on housing, um, in this sector, thinking about the complexities that survivors bring mm-hmm. and being um, responsive to those complexities in sort of a trauma-informed way and being able to say, yeah, your life is complicated. Let's try to work around that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Well, great. Thank you all for sharing your your expertise and your experience. I really found this uh, super helpful and valuable for me to kind of think through these issues. So thanks again for your time um, and look forward to to partnering in the work ahead. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you, Mike.